0: Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? Good. I heard one good, the early, the, the encourager. Who was that back there? I think it. I don't know. Thank you, whoever it was. It was wonderful, and then everyone else. That's great. Um, well, hey, I love that we are here, and I am excited about today. And I just want to jump in. Um, so let's just start off with a little personal insight, as I like to do sometimes. Um, something I've learned as a parent, right? I have, I have two kids. They're amazing, Gavin and Brooklyn. They're seven and five. They are unreal kids. I, as you've heard me say before, like not a day goes by where spontaneously. Amber and I look at each other, and at some point, I just say, I, I love our kids. They're awesome. But something I've learned in, in, about parenting, and I think it's true everywhere, is, is don't make a promise you can't keep. Um, Amber, Amber and I are constantly bombarded with requests. I mean, it's like, can I have some gum? I mean, every day, can I have some gum? Can I, can I play? I mean, every day in church, Gavin makes a reservation to play with my iPad after church. Can I play with your iPad after church? And really what he wants to do is play with it at that moment, but he's learned after 100 requests that the answer is after church, maybe. Um, but can I, can I play with your iPad? Can we go on a bike ride? Can we have a camp out in the living room? Can can we go to Target and buy a toy? Can I get on the roof? I mean, all these are real requests. Like They're just constantly coming at us. And this is what I've learned. Unless I have some kind of intention of actually keeping... That, that promise, that, 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 you know, kind of fulfillment of request, I need to just answer with a, with a simple and clear uh, no. Why? Because to leave any, any possibility of, of this resulting and actually them being able to get what they are asking for, um, it, it only reser- results in greater expectation and even a greater pursuit and therefore even greater insanity on Amber and I because of just the constancy of those questions. Even worse is to say yes and not follow through. My kids are amazing kids, and they can handle no, I think, better than the rest of them. Sorry, parents. But they they do it really well. Um, What they cannot handle is a promise that does not uh, get followed through when a promise is not kept. What I hope we see today is that when it comes to the promises God has made, um, we can live and move forward in, in full confidence that they will be and will always be fulfilled. Let me pray. God, uh, I, I look forward to these next few moments of, of digging into that wonderful truth, Lord, that, as Lauren just said earlier, Lord, that you will always do what you have said you will do. Lord, and, and that you are always capable to do what you have promised, So I pray now as we come to your word, Lord, that you would open our hearts, our minds, our lives, Lord, that we would be brought into greater trust, Lord, that our lives would bear the fruit of that trust, and Lord, that you would be glorified. So Lord, now take these words that I have prepared, Lord, from your truth. Lord, catch them aflame, we confess and find comfort that nothing good can come of this place, that no transformation can happen, that no, that no deepening of understanding could occur if the Holy Spirit does not catch these words of flames, a flame in us. So Lord, here it is. Lord, be glorified, transform us, we thank you for your truth, Give us a hunger for it every day in Jesus name. Amen. So quickly, uh, go, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 4. If you have not, this is, we're continuing our study through Romans. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25 today. Um, we also use the UVersion Bible app, so you can go to the More tab at the bottom, uh, look for events. We'll pop up there, and we'll have the passage for today and, and, and some other things you should know and maybe, maybe some questions to help you reflect and pray further into this text uh, passages will be on the screen as well. And there's a Bible. We have a myriad of ways for you to be with us. There's a Bible on the floor near you. If you don't have a Bible, please take that with you. That's our gift to you. So if Romans 4, uh, 18 through 25 today, just quickly to get us up to speed with what's been happening so far. In this section of Romans, Paul has just been laying out masterfully our way to salvation. We spent the first part of Romans Uh, understanding why we need salvation, and now we've been talking about the way to salvation, and in this section in chapter 4 specifically as we look at it, uh, Paul has been using the example of Abraham, a hero of the Jewish faith, a hero of the people that Paul is writing to. He, he, he was not just a hero that was lauded, but he was the example of righteousness. He was, he was the one that was thought to have no sin as far as like being able to live out the righteousness. So he's been breaking it down, and he's been kind of exploding their ideas in, in a wonderful way and a hard way. And what he's saying is that, you know, he's saying this kind of ex- uh, following the train of thought as he's been teaching through Abraham. He says it's not Ab- Abraham's righteousness that saved or justified him. It wasn't that. Instead, Abraham was saved by his faith in God. That is what, it was Abraham's faith in God that justified him and not his works of righteousness. It was turning everything on its head. His faith made him righteous. Okay, so so, so when, so then they asked this, they were like, so when, when exactly did his faith save him? When was he justified? It was a was it before or after he was circumcised? Again, was it before or after he, he showed some outward expression of obedience to the, the law, to the commands given? And Paul's exploding. It's not by the law. It's, by, it's not by your completed work of the law, but it's the completed work of Christ. It was not after he was circumcised. It was before. It was, it was a good almost two decades before that he was actually redeemed. So he lays that out. So it's not outward obedience, it's not that outward obedience saved, it's the work of Christ, the inner transformation that matters. And so this way, salvation could be shown to be, to be far more than, than just that behavior and for all who believe, and not just the people of Israel, because as he was redeemed, justified, saved, before he was circumcised, he, the Gentiles, those outside of the people of Israel could identify. And as he was uh, fulfilling the law... He could also, uh, the Israelites could identify. So again, we're just kind of tracing the steps. The way of salvation has always been the same. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, they believed God and they believed Him for a future Redeemer. They were looking forward to Christ. Their faith in God is that He would fulfill His promises in, in a Redeemer. And in the New Covenant, now we look back. Jesus. So it's all in the saving work of Christ. And Paul has just been building this case, reinforcing it over and over again, not wanting us to forget, not wanting us to divert to some other way Today, we're coming to the end of Paul using Abraham's life and faith as an example. So just as much as today continues this very last section that we looked at last week, it's really a summation of the entire section of what we call chapter 4. And you'll see that as the themes overlap again and again. And I encourage you, if you haven't been tracking with us, you can go back and listen to them. and It'll give you a fuller um, kind of view, kind of in technicolor instead of black and white, of what we've been working through. So today, I want us to look at Abraham's faith. And in doing so, I pray our confidence grows, not in him, but in who God is. So first we see the circumstances of Abraham's faith. The circumstances. It's in Romans 4.18, we see this. It says, in hope, he believed against hope. We're talking about Abraham. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, "So so shall your offspring be and Paul is referring specifically to this promise communicated in Genesis 15:5 it says and he brought him outside and said look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them then he said to him so shall your offspring be abraham had every reason not to believe that we're talking about a promise of offspring that outnumbers the stars and yet abraham was old. He was 99. Sarah was old as well. She was about 90, and she was barren. She had never had kids. And so circumstances, I mean, he was as good as dead. Sarah's womb was dead. Circumstances were against them for this promise to be fulfilled. How in the world is it possible? And we think about kind of what we face in this world, and we you know, and there are there are promises of this world. I mean, kind of like the things of if you're nice, you'll have friends. If you work hard, you'll succeed. And you know, and they they seem like promises, and sometimes they work out, but sometimes they don't. We we hear the promises of God. God makes a lot of promises. He's like, you can know peace, you can be redeemed, you are redeemed. You, you, you can be taken from an outsider to someone who belongs, from, a, from an orphan to one who is adopted as a son and daughter. You have infinite worth. Your worth is not defined by the things of your external working, but you have infinite worth. There is justice. All these promises that we hear from God that kind of our circumstances just don't seem to line up with. These promises are difficult to believe, just like Abraham. In fact, we often stop short of actually resting in the promise we like it we, we kind of throw we kind of throw some love towards them and we even kind of uh, you know claim to them in a way and claim to them but yet we often stop short of actually resting in them and moving towards them and, and, and we'll actually guard ourselves from the risk of being disappointed and kind of on all levels again thinking about the the relationships how often we we kind of just go ahead and sabotage because we don't want to be rejected later we find a reason to to you know just to get out uh, that picture over and over again, we will, we, will, we, we will avoid the risk of actually seeing the promise come to fruition. Because we don't want to be disappointed. Over, you know, and and we, we become our own caretakers and we take that on ourselves. So we either take matters into our own hands or we avoid the risk altogether. So Abraham's circumstances seemed to fly in the face of hope. Yet it says he hoped against hope. What does that mean? So I, I want you to know that you already get this. Like We hear the word hope a lot. Um, you know, he's, Paul here is contrasting earthly hope with eternal hope. In our earthly hope and kind of the way that we hear hope talked about a lot, we hear things like, I hope the package I ordered arrives in time, right? Um, or I hope I get the job. I hope she says yes when I ask her out. I hope that he asked me out. We hope... Yeah, well, that resonated. Okay. Um, another hope we often say is, you know, we, we we hope to have children next year. Like we use hope in this sense of of it, that it's a it's a desire, but yet has an uncertain, an uncertainty to it because it's based on earthly circumstances or just our our ability to know what's coming. So there's an uncertainty in the way that we often hear hope discussed in the way we even often speak of hope. But, but here when we see that Abraham hoped against hope, we're seeing that there is a hope of God that is completely different. When we hope in God, we can say that we hope against hope because his hope is a present anticipation of that which is already fulfilled and being fulfilled. Because God is God, because He's eternal, He's unchanging, He is all powerful, He is He is ever present, ever near, ever loving, He is what He is. Our, when we hope in Him and the things of Him and His promises, it's actually a hope of full confidence and not uncertainty. So when we see that Abraham hoped against hope, his hope was not grounded in his circumstances or what he knew, but in what he knew of God. So how was Abraham and uh, I've kind of gotten us there a little bit ahead of time, but how was Abraham able to respond with such hope? So next, as we continue, we'll see the assurance of Abraham's hope that led, I mean, of faith that led to this kind of hope, the assurance of Abraham's faith. We'll see this. Let's look at verses 19 through 21 says, he did not weaken in faith, again, talking about Abraham, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, what we were just talking about. It says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Wouldn't you like that to be true of you? But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Man, it says that Abraham did not weaken in faith and that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. And, you know, like I hear that and and I kind of think about the people of Israel at the time, and a few weeks ago, we read some of their historic writings where they talk about, like, he needed no atoning. He, his righteousness in itself was enough. Like, they had this view of Abraham that, that he was perfect. Not a Messiah, but that he was perfect in his righteousness. And I kind of... This sounds a little hyperbolic to me. Like, when I, when I just read the simple words. I mean, Abraham's... In his assurance, what we see... It's not that he was perfect, and it's not that he he denied his circumstances. What we see in his faith, he defied his circumstances. He didn't deny his circumstances, he defied them. So does this mean that Abraham never doubted? Impossible. No, it does not mean that he never doubted. Read through Genesis 12 through 25, just when you have some time. He was absolutely human in his unwavering faith. I mean, Genesis 17, 17, a later so so starts off, God tells Abraham, Through your offspring there will be a blessing to all people. And and so then they kind of go, and then it gets more specific. And he's like, in 17 and then in 1715, God tells Abraham, No, through you and Sarah. You will have an offspring. Who this all will come from? And look at Abraham's response in seventeen seventeen. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. This is before God, and said to himself, "Shall a child be born to a man who is hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child?" So, what is his faith didn't waver, but yet he laughed, like fell on his face. Once last time, you fell on your face laughing. Like I don't. I mean, that's like, I. I don't know. I, I have never have. I, I hope to have that effect on someone one day. Um, but I, I've just never been there. But that's pretty hysterical. Like that is an extreme response. Some doubt is part of our faith. It is the collision, the collision, the collision of the finite with the infinite. There is a chasm that cannot be bridged when the, when the, when the finite person meets an infinite God. Therefore, there is a moment when our, there is there has to be a place where our understanding comes up way short when our conceptuality of what could be cannot attain to what God has promised but i love what douglas moose said he said the doubt meant is not a passing hesitation which we know all too well but a deep seated more permanent attitude of distrust and inconsistency in relationship to god and his promises so he's saying that to say that his 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 faith never wavered, that he never doubted is not to say he didn't have these momentary passing moments of hesitation when he had to come to the end of himself. He's saying overall, the trajectory of his life, the attitude of his heart was that God actually will and can do what he has promised. That should be comforting because man, regardless of your personality, we're all achievers when it comes to wanting to succeed and wanting to, to, to be redeemed. Like, we, we, we want to measure up. When we think of faith, we often think of abandoning what's real. Like, that seems to be the only feasible way that we cannot waver, is if we just abandon what's real. That's what, that's what the world has looked at the church as, and sadly, because the church has earned that right that, that label in some ways, but it's this idea that to have faith is to check your logic at the door, to live with your head in the clouds or, or to put on a fake face as if nothing is ever hard in your life. And man, there is no credibility in that. This is not faith. At best, is acting. At worst, is denial. Or maybe even at worst, it is self-sovereignty that you are your own God. Who can do your own redeeming. Sam Storms said this, Faith is not convincing yourself that things don't exist when they do or that things do exist when they don't. The Bible never calls on us to ignore reality. Rather, it calls on us to put our faith in the Lord of reality, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. In other words, faith doesn't declare the circumstances and natural barriers to be non-existent. Faith simply declares that God is not shackled by them as we are. Faith is completely rooted in reality, completely, inescapably, and it's just that that reality is the one of God's, it is His reality. So, so often, we think about life and our circumstances, and we feel them just chipping away at our faith. And I think a common metric of our faith is peace. And when we often feel this chipping away at our peace and our confidence, and we're like, man, how can any of this be? How can it be real? Like, what is real? And again, how do we come to this God of reality that we're talking about? So let's continue. Paul then continues in saying, not only did his faith not waver or weaken, But in the the contrary, into the exact opposite, actually his faith grew stronger in the midst of these insane circumstances that flew in the face of the promise. As Abraham did not lean on his understanding of his circumstances, but instead walked in faith and obedience, his faith was strengthened. And man, this brings us to the whole point once again in this whole section. What is the whole point of this whole section? God is the point. That's what Paul is just trying to get them to. God is the point. Not the law, not Abraham, not tradition, not family alignment, not even faith itself. You see, it was not the merit of faith that saved Abraham or you, but the object of faith. That is, faith was in God. It'd be like me having complete faith if I'm drowning that, that, hey, throw me that rock. That rock will save me. And they throw me this boulder and what's going to happen? I'm going to cling to it and I'm going to sink to the bottom. It is when my my trust is in the life preserver and they throw it to me and I grab it. If I don't think the life life preserver will save me, what do I do when they throw it to me? Get away from it. So the object of our faith matters. And God, and he's saying that God, the Redeemer, the Creator, the Sustainer, He, faith in Him, is what saved. God is the point. As we trust God, we walk in obedience. And here, let's follow this train of thought. As we walk in obedience, we see God's character and truth proven over again, over and over again. We are actually, we are actually put into the environment to experience that God is real and that He is good, when we actually walk by faith into risk, when we actually walk by faith into the circumstance that our our understanding wants to run run away from, in that work, in that surrender, in that trial, our faith grows, our capacity for faith increases. This takes me back to my sophomore year of high school playing JV basketball with Coach Wiley. And this is now one of my dadisms, by the way. And we would have practice, and by the way, this was the only year of my basketball career of of the, I played ninth grade, JV, and varsity. This was the only year that we, like, were first place in our division. It was under this coach and this mindset. We would practice, we would practice, we would hit fundamentals, we would practice, and then at the end of practice, when we're all wiped out, we'd have to get around the free throw line, around the, around the key And we would shoot two. Each player would shoot two. And if, as a team, we didn't shoot 80%, we would have to then run some kind of conditioning drill, like a suicide or a a ladder run. Then we would come back to the key, and we would all shoot. And if we didn't shoot 80% as a team, we would do it again. And we would do it again until we shot 80%. And we 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 would hear Coach Wiley yelling this. He said, it is when you are wiped out, it is when you are tired that you get stronger. It is when you work when you are tired that you get stronger. It is when you, is when you, is when you work when you're, when you're exhausted that you actually build the skill and capacity to finish the game all four quarters. And I, as I thought about that, I was like, man, this is exactly the picture here. This is the picture of our faith growing stronger. It was practicing to a high standard when we were wiped that prepared us to finish the game strong throughout four quarters. This, this has to be talking about, here as we look at what Abraham, faith instead of just our person. It is that as we, as we walk in obedience, as we do the work of faith, and we find ourselves out there, and we're overwhelmed and exhausted, and yet we persevere, and all of a sudden we see God proven faithful once again, that our capacity for faith increases. The next time, yes, we will always have to lean into the understanding of God, but next time, maybe there's one less obstacle. And then the next time, one less obstacle. And maybe sometimes we take a step back, but then the next time, we remember once again, oh, God is faithful. And it's not just this aspirational thought that He is faithful, but this experiential reality that He is faithful. Because you've experienced it. And, it's, and so this is, the, this is what we see here. Is that as we, we see that as we walk in obedience and as we, you know, we see our capacity for faith grow? It's not that Abraham got better at faithing, if we could say that. And I think that's what we try to do. We just try to get better at faithing. We try to get better at doing the things of faith, acting like someone who has faith. But no, well, the promise is, is that we will actually grow in our understanding, we will actually grow in our capacity of faith in walking in this strength. Of God. And Abraham's faith was strengthened, and our faith is strengthened because we grow in our understanding of who God is, his truth, that his his truth is right and good, and that his intent is good for his creation to redeem and restore. Abraham, and you and I can become more and more convinced that God can and will do all that he has promised. As it said, in verse 21, the marvel here, the glorious outcome is not that Abraham was made stronger, but instead his faith was. It's not that you and I will just in ourselves get stronger. It's that our faith would be stronger because what's the quality of those two strengths? One is temporal, one is eternal. If, I, if, it's, just, if it's just about me getting stronger in myself and my own person, that's fleeting. It's still limited. It still has a ceiling. It still has an expiration date. But when my faith is stronger, my my strength is actually in the person of God, who he is, how he is. There is no expiration date, there is no ceiling, there is no limit. His strength. Our strength will fail, but God's never will. So we see, we see this assurance of faith in Abraham as he understands God more and more and walks in obedience? What was the outcome? What was this personal? There's a couple of outcomes here of Abraham's faith, and first we're going to look at the personal outcome of Abraham and his faith, and we see it right there in verse 20. God is glorified, and I'll tell you, we think a lot of things satisfy in this world, and I'm just gonna say the statement because I have experienced it to be true and truer in my life, and because it has been promised to me to be true in my life, that there was only one satisfying purpose that any of us could pursue, and that would be that the glory of God would be shown through our life, that attention would be brought to Him, that our life would ascribe that worth. There is no greater purpose. A life marked by faith that God is real, that He is good, and that He is faithful and capable to do all He has promised will result in a life of obedience, and Godward worship, and kingdom priorities, and that glorifies God. It calls people to that reality. That is what we're created for. That is what satisfies. That is what matters. That is what we long for. So that's the personal outcome of this faith, is that the very thing you will create it for, you will actually grow in capacity to achieve. As your, the capacity for faith grows, God is glorified all the more in you. It's a work that He has done to Do you. You hear that again. Like, we participate in His work. So the personal outcome of faith is that, that God is glorified for Abraham, we see that. And then we also see for Abraham, there was a prophetic outcome. And just meaning simply in this sense, that there is a future work that was accomplished as well. And guys, this is really, really, really good news. Uh, let's look at verses 20 through, 22 through 25. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And that's, per, that's in perpetuity. That's for us as well. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So it's kind of interesting to read that. Especially in the plain text, and to try to draw the meaning from it. I mean, you could kind of say, well, does this mean that we're saved by Abraham's faith? No, um, not that. But it does mean that in the same manner Abraham was saved, and the same outcomes of his life are for all who come after, including you and me. This should sound familiar from the past uh, few weeks. We're going to dig into this this idea more in Romans 5 coming up. But what we see here is this this progression. We are the same as Abraham, right? We're the same as Abraham. Mankind is the same, all of humanity. God is unchanging and the way he works is unchanging. Therefore, we have the same need as Abraham and we have the same promise as Abraham and the impact of our lives can be the same as Abraham's. We're talking about The righteousness of Christ credited to us upon surrender and belief. Again, as we said, God has always been working the the same through through all of creation for the redeeming, for the reconciling, for the restoring of all things. He's always been working the same. So, therefore, just as we see this amazing picture of faith in Abraham and a life a life lifted up to just honor God, we have that same opportunity. First, in our salvation that was achieved in Christ, and then the living out as we are transformed and, and, and we, are, we are surrendering and aiming our lives at God's good truth and, and uh, desire for us. We see this same reality and promise for us. So that's the beauty. I mean, again, the righteousness of Christ is given to us so our standing is secure And our purpose is that we would then live out a life of our faith growing and expressed in joyful obedience that God would be glorified. We have to marvel at the saving work of Jesus. You know, every now and then we kind of, we talk a good bit about um, kind of reminding, preaching the gospel to ourselves every day you know we think of the gospel often as just for conversion just for salvation and when I, it is that and it is the only hope of our salvation but yet it is also the hope of our daily life to be reminded of the work that was done We have to marvel at the work of Christ that in no merit of our own did we attain, did we achieve our salvation, but in God's love and mercy and grace, He sent His only Son to be a substitutionary sacrifice for you and me to take on our sin, to take on our punishment, that we could be whole and right standing and free and alive. We have to marvel at that because that is the only way that we can rest and His completed work. We talked about resting in the completed work of Christ and then working while we rest in Christ a few weeks ago, if you remember that. This is the only way that we can actually find rest. That's where peace is. Peace comes when the work is complete. The work is complete in Christ. So if you want that promise of peace, it is only in Christ. We have to marvel at the work of Christ. We believe in God, as He is, and as He has worked on our behalf in Christ, that is the faith that saves. And you see, you come here to the verse, verse uh, twenty-four and twenty-five. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So He was delivered up for sacrifice because we were. Sinners, because we could not overcome on our own, and he was raised so that our justification, our salvation would be complete. You see, the death of Christ takes away our sin guilt, the resurrection secures our justification before God, our salvation before God, as God returned to heaven as our advocate and intercessor. See, the resurrection proves the divinity of Christ and it validates all the claims He made and all the claims about Him. And and just to track this through, to see it's always been the same as in the Old Covenant sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the death and sacrifice occurred in the public arena before the people. Then the blood was brought into the Holy of Holies to pour on the mercy seat as again, as an, as an intercession, as an advocation for the people, Jesus did the same. He endured the cross on earth in front of all creation and ascended into heaven to bring the blood of the sacrifice to present His righteousness before God for our justification, for our salvation. So as Jesus' death provides the necessary grounds on which God's justifying action can proceed, so His resurrection By vindicating Christ and freeing him forever from the influence of sin. What is the influence of sin? Destruction, death. Freeing him forever from the influence of sin provides for the ongoing power over sins experienced by the believer in union with Christ. We will continue to sin in this life. We are people of flesh, but we are being transformed. We are being made more like Him as we surrender, as we walk in obedience, as we pursue Him. So let us live in a hope secured in the work of Christ that defies our circumstances. And in that, it glorifies God, proclaiming to the world that He is real, He is good, and He, is, he has made a way to salvation in His Son, Jesus, working to restore all things. Every week, we, we do communion. And, um, you know, Jesus, this moment happened with his, his closest disciples, the inner circle in the upper room, just before he was arrested. He, was, he knew he was leaving them. And he also knew what he was leaving to them. He knew that he was leaving the entire mission of the gospel to what was to come, the church, through them. He knew their circumstances were going to be hard. He knew that their faith would be challenged. He knew that their eyes, that only see what they see, would, get, would all of a sudden get bound in what they define as, as what is possible. And he wanted to help them remember what he was accomplishing. So he gave them this picture as they sat around the table eating a meal, he gave them this picture so that it would galvanize in their hearts and minds that they could remember. And it's, and it's meant to be in perpetuity, not just in these moments, but that every time we gather around the table together as the body of Christ, that we would have this heart of gratitude and this heart of remembering and this mind, this posture of remembering the work. Salvation is complete in Christ, and now we are walking in this life in obedience, glorifying Him. So he wanted to give them this picture. So what he did is he reached out, and he took the bread, and he said, this is my body that was broken for you. Every time you take it, remember, do so in remembrance of me. Do so remembering in the provision of me laying down my life. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup is the blood of the covenant. Every time you take it, do so in remembrance of me. And so he's saying, in doing that, you remember you're also aligning, you're laying down your life as I am. And then what was to come, what we see is that a few days later, he defeated death and sin and he was raised. So we have this invitation to remember because Jesus knew our circumstances will assault us every day. But yet when our confidence is not in us or in the things of this world and how they align with what we think should be, but instead in an eternal God who is working in all things and is never absent, never overcome Then we have hope, we have salvation, and we have a life of power that will impact this world for his glory. And you respond. God, we thank you, Lord, that it is not dependent on our work. And it's not even dependent on the merit of our faith. But, Lord, it is dependent on us trusting you. Lord, that we can trust you for our salvation, the way that you worked for our redemption in Christ. And Lord, as we have surrendered and confessed our need for Christ and our salvation to him, that we have also been given a new name, a new identity, a new purpose in his life, that we would then also take up the mantle of his mission, that he came to seek and save the lost. To proclaim the beauty and the riches of his grace, Lord, that we cannot overcome, but he is overcome. And so, Lord, now as we, as we reflect and remember, let us come and take of the bread and drink of the cup. And, Lord, and I pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would strengthen us, would empower us, would move us, Lord, to a way of life that screams this reality. That we're not trying to escape, that we're not trying to hide, that we're not trying to deny or act some certain way, but that we are who we are because you've made us. There's that in Christ overwhelm us overwhelm us God